You are listening to Single Payer Radio. This is Kay Tillo. I'm with Kentuckians for Single Payer Healthcare. And this program is coming to you on WFMP LP 106.5 FM on your dial. You can listen to our show here on Mondays at 2 p.m., on Tuesdays at 7 a.m., and on Wednesdays at 11 a.m. And I'm uh, delighted to bring to you a special guest today. She is a physician. Uh, She resides in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, and her name is Judy Albert. And I'm going to let her tell you a little bit about herself. Well, good morning, and thank you, Kay, for inviting me to be on the show. Um, I've never been on a radio program before, so it's exciting. So I uh, was trained as an obstetrician gynecologist, and um, and then I did subspecialty training in uh, reproductive endocrinology and infertility, and spent uh, 30 years in, in mostly private practice, but um, for some time I was in an academic practice, um, both at the University of Pennsylvania and then at University of Pittsburgh. And most of uh, the, the care that we delivered um, was uh, unreimbursed care for patients um, who have infertility because uh, private insurance companies can decide that, you know, have decided that infertility is not medically, is, does not uh, meet the criteria for being medically necessary, uh, at least the treatment for it. So uh, the diagnosis of infertility can be made, but once it's made, insurance um, backs away and says treatment is not medically necessary and is unreimbursed. So, um, you know, I spent, and, and that varies state by state, but in my state, there was no mandate that um, treatments needed to be paid for. So some insurance companies uh, that are employer-based have offered that type of um, coverage, but the vast majority did not. And so I did spend quite a lot of time as a practitioner trying to negotiate the, the waters between when is the diagnosis of infertility made so that everything else that you do for that patient is then uh, in the no covered uh, category. And also watching patients struggle um, to achieve their goals of having a baby by mortgaging their homes, having multiple jobs. And, you know, it, it was. Um, Pittsburgh is is not a, a place where there um, is is incredible uh, Silicon Valley type wealth, and so um, it, it's heartbreaking to watch people go through that. Um, over the years, there were some employers, um, as uh, we saw some of the high tech employers move into our area, and uh, for instance, Facebook and Google both have offices now in Pittsburgh. And they uh, developed a consortium of insurance riders that they offered to all of their employees that gave unbelievable coverage for infertility care. And this is an, you know, an attraction that those companies um, hold out to their employees who um, are asked to work crazy hours and devote their lives to um, the strategies that those companies are trying to pursue. So we did see that there were some breaks in the, the system and some people were getting coverage. So that's a background um, of you know, what happens when insurance isn't co- is not covering 
um, services, it's not quite the same as, uh, you know, when you're poor and can't uh, access any services for life-saving care, uh, but it certainly set the stage for my, um, my thoughts about healthcare. And um, as I came towards the end of my career, um, I had been in private practice the last 20 years with another uh, woman, and we had um, also the experience of being employers and having to provide insurance for our staff. We had a staff of about 28 um, individuals that worked in our lab and ultrasonographers and nurses and administrators and billing staff. And we were committed to providing healthcare and a pension plan. Um, and actually we were completely female run and um, staffed except for one man um, practice. And so we saw the other side of every year negotiating how much we were going to pay in order to insure our staff. Um, and we also, you know, knew that medical practices don't run on a, on a large profit margin, at least ours didn't. And that at some point we were going to need to retire because we were getting older. So at the end of 2018, we successfully negotiated a sale of our practice to the University of Pittsburgh. And then we became employees of the University of Pittsburgh. And I, I just really couldn't um, tolerate practicing in this corporate style of medicine. And that led to my retirement at the end of 2019. What was wrong at, at the University of Pittsburgh when you were practicing? At the university? Yes. <laughs> well, let's see. <laughs> what wasn't wrong? Um, you know, there were a lot of promises made that weren't kept, which is typical. And, you know, I was kind of naive. I'm sure every person in business um, can relate to the fact that when mergers happen, that uh, the, the whole flavor of a, an organization changes. But most, most prominently, the things that we saw were they, as I said, with uh, watching patients have to pay out of pocket for, for services that in many cases would normally be covered, such as ultrasounds, they, they raised the prices on all of our procedures. And it, it just, just because they could. And that when you raise prices and, and you do have some of it covered by insurance, um, the people who have the insurance coverage aren't gonna suffer, nor are you really gonna get a higher rate of reimbursement because the insurance decides what's the usual customary and reasonable price to pay. But who it hurts is the people that don't have insurance because you can't discount them. So we used to charge say 200 for an ultrasound, they raised it to 500. So our, our non-insured uh, non patients are paying a, literally more than double for a service that they still had to pay for, but it was less costly. And all the insurance, they, they were gonna make all their extra money off of these um, people that didn't have insurance. So that was just the kind of the tip of the iceberg. And they already are a, a multi-billion dollar corporation, University of Pittsburgh Medical Center. Um, and so it didn't really seem like that was the right way to go. That's a terrible thing. Okay. <laughs> um, so how long have you been involved in Physicians for a National Health Program? How did this come about? Well, you know, I, I, um, I had been interested in some 
you know, some ways of looking at oppression and social justice, I would say a lot of it was because of the actions of one of my kids. Um, my middle son has um, had a real strong motivation to be involved in social justice organizations, environmentalism, and, and more recently, uh, anti-racist organizations. And I had, had uh, got involved in some of those with um, some very much younger people who were doing grassroots teaching and organizing in like 2014. And in 2016, around the time of the election, um, I was feeling like there must be a way that I could sort of join together maybe my experience in medicine and some of those activities. And I, I, I can't actually remember how I found out about PNHP, um, but I did. And I looked at the website and the contact person uh, for Pittsburgh was uh, Dr. Anna Malinow, who was a former president of PNHP. I didn't never met her before, but she was just um, sort of reactivating a group of physicians. Um, and I started going to those meetings and um, Anna is an incredibly knowledgeable and motivating person. And, and you know, we, you know, got a, a official charter going for sort of a new chapter. There had been chapters there before and, and that's how I got involved. Um, and then sadly, she and her husband um, moved to brighter opportunities and work to San Francisco. And so I was left with a small handful of other people to try to carry on our mission. And uh, are, you're now the president of the uh, Western Well, we, we don't really have, I mean, we're pretty small and there are a really literally only a handful of people. So we kind of call ourselves um, co-founders and we have never really set up a structure of, of officers. Um, so I, I really wouldn't call myself the president. So you have uh, a collective leadership and you uh, uh, are one of the contact people to make that go. Well, yeah. I, uh, I'm aware that you've done some good work to try to reach out to union locals, mm -hmm. and to workers who have been on strike and to workers who are trying to negotiate contracts. And I really appreciate that work that you've participated in uh, you know, trying to make sure that people in those situations have the information that they need to fight for the kind of plan that would really um, end this terrible struggle that uh, unions have to bargain a new contract uh, every few years uh, with the prices going up and uh, the situation eating up the money that they need to put into wages and other benefits. So. Yes, that's been, and that's been, you know, another super important um, contact, which Anna had really forged with uh, the Western PA uh, Coalition for Single Payer, um, that Ed Gristar has, has been the, I guess, I don't know if he calls himself president, but they, um, and I, I can't even tell you the full on background, but they're a much longer uh, in, group in existence that have community members, uh, several of whom are, are connected to the uh, labor movement. Ed's a lab retired labor organizer and some uh, labor attorneys that um, 
are involved and um, they are the ones who connected us with um, lots of local labor organizations. Um, interestingly, mostly outside of Allegheny County, which is where Pittsburgh um, is seated, um, because Allegheny County's labor branches um, have so many ties to private insurance um, financially, at least their leaders do. So we've done outreach into um, areas up to as north as far north as Erie um, and in the surrounding counties to Allegheny County. And we were lucky to um, have the ability to show um, a great film that you were involved with, Kay, called Off the Table, um, that makes the case for labor unions to support single payer because if, if they don't have to neg negotiate for health care, then uh, they can negotiate for their stagnant wages to increase. And so we've had a lot of, of opportunities to show that um, film at different places. And it gets great response from the rank and file labor, but um, I, it's been a huge education for me to try to come to an understanding of how the rank and file and the leadership um, operate and interact with each other. I still don't understand it. And it's, it seems, you know, you can probably correct me on this, Kay, but it just seems like the politics require an ex extremely savvy person to, to navigate that successfully. Well, I don't know. I've spent uh, my life in the labor movement and uh, I uh, certainly have not uh, successfully transformed it into, <laughs> into the labor movement that I want to see. But yeah. uh, we did work for uh, a very long time to get uh, local unions and state federations to endorse uh, national single payer health care. Mm -hmm. And I think that 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 we got, I think, over 600 union organizations to endorse H.R. 676, which was the mm -hmm. national single-payer bill. And uh, we st I still think that that project is worthwhile to bring labor on board at the grassroots and to keep pushing things at the top. Um, at the top of the labor movement, you know, there is, it's kind of a dual position. Therefore, single payer someday, you know. <laughs> and, but for right now, they really uh, tend to just follow what the mainstream part of the Democratic Party says, which is to improve the Affordable Care Act. So that's yeah. that's still a project that's underway. Is to uh, if we could move all of labor to push for single payer at the national level and to condemn the efforts to keep us strapped into the Affordable Care Act, which uh, keeps the private insurers in the mix, we would have accomplished something big, but that's right. yet to be done. It's on the agenda. Yeah. <laughs> um, so um, I have, uh, I know that you are one of the people who organized a recent uh, educational webinar, it's called, on direct contracting entities. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so that uh, term is not familiar, I'm certain, to most people. So perhaps you could tell us uh, what that is about and tell us about that event. Sure, I will try to explain it. It's very, uh, the webinar, 
putting the web webinar together wasn't that complicated, but the subject is very complicated. So uh, a few of us um, who had come together nationally, um, I mean, and this has been the beauty of, if there is any sort of positive about COVID is that I feel like we've been more connected to people outside of our local areas um, who are active in the single payer movement through Zoom. And it's become commonplace to have meetings with people from all over the place. So um, some of the people who had been uh, talking in, in other groups had, had become aware um, largely through the efforts of um, a health journalism um, journalist, uh, Trudy Lieberman, was how I first um, heard about the direct contracting entities that um, there is a, a new plan or model uh, that the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Innovation came up with to um, further the goal of that organization, the Centers for, I think it's actually Centers for Medicaid and Medicare Innovation, um, which is a uh, housed in, in the center, in CMS. And their, their um, assignment is to develop new models that would save money for Medicare, for the Medicare system, um, while improving care, or at least not um, reducing the quality of care. And so one of the they, they've developed a number of models um, over the years that CMMI was created under the uh, Affordable, Affordable Care Act. And so um, since that time, they have developed models to, um, towards this goal of um, trying to reduce costs and um, maintaining the quality of care. And largely those have been models that involved um, accountable care organizations, which are organizations that um, feature the um, use of quality measurements. Um, so there's a, a there are several metrics that they set up, lots and lots of metrics to determine that physicians are doing the right thing and patients are getting the right tests and the right treatments for certain diseases. And if they do that, then they will be rewarded in some way financially. It's much more complicated than that, but that's a, a quick overview. And so through the years, the, the, some of the ACO models um, hadn't maybe been performing as well as people hoped. And so they are forever creating new models. And um, this new model of direct contracting entities uses a similar approach but the difference is that traditional Medicare beneficiaries, those that signed up for fee-for-service traditional Medicare could be enrolled in a direct contracting entity um, that uh, without their knowledge. So the other piece of this that I didn't mention is that Medicare Advantage has been another um, tool that CMS has used to try to save money by allowing the entrance of private insurers into the Medicare market. And that uh, precedes the Accountable, Accountable Care Act by, by many years. Uh, Medicare Advantage plans have been around since 
um, I think the 80s, um, but they've uh, taken up an ever greater share of the market such that now 40% of Medicare beneficiaries are enrolled in Medicare Advantage. And so Medicare Advantage is a choice that beneficiaries can make when they turn 65. That um, is a way of uh, assuring that they don't have gaps in coverage that traditional Medicare um, has because traditional Medicare is an 80-20 proposition. So meaning that beneficiaries are responsible for 20% of the coverage. And the other route to cover your gaps is to get um, a Medigap plan, which is a fee-for-service type plan. Wow. <laughs> All of that is just ridiculously complicated. So the, the DCEs were just a, 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 are a group of entities that um, mostly involve accountable care organizations, which are organizations of physicians that work within their networks um, with primary care doctors and specialists to keep costs down. And they are paid in a, in a capitated sort of way, meaning they get paid up front and they, they, they have a certain amount of money to um, use to take care of their um, insured beneficiaries. But if there are more needs that that group has, they're going to be penalized in some way if um, more services are required than their capitated fees pay. So um, all of that has the potential to lead to skimping on care for patients. And um, the direct contracting entities uh, um, uh, are, are on multiple levels trying to help um, figure out what population of patients are going to be the best to ensure, um, meaning, you know, probably figuring out healthier ones and also figuring out how they can use billing codes and diagnosis codes to uh, improve the, the um, reimbursement, which is another whole. <laughs> so now I'm, I think I've probably completely confused everybody about that. Well, uh, but <clears throat> I appreciate uh, the attempt to straighten us out. So we have uh, Medicare is the program that is for those 65 and older and uh, for uh, some people who are totally disabled, right? And, yep. and for, I think, some people who have end-stage renal disease and need right. dialysis. Right. Uh, so it's a, it's a big program. And this was established back in 1965 under Lyndon Johnson. And um, it's been a successful program. So what you're saying is that in when they passed the Affordable Care Act in 2010, they put in there this section on the Center for Medicare and Medicaid Innovation. And it's under that uh, program, which is a part of the federal government, that these direct contracting entities are being experimented with. Correct. Can you explain what that, I, I see that the, um, I think Anna Malino came up with this, that the direct contracting entities were a Wall Street takeover of Medicare. 
Right. Um, uh, how exactly is that working? <laughs> <clears throat> well, so maybe uh, backing up a little bit and, and talking about how the, the Medicare Advantage model um, has, has sort of you know, shown a light for Wall Street on how profits can be made in the system. Um, and then, you know, how DCEs can also factor into that. So, uh, the, you know, when, when the federal government decided that, well, maybe, you know, we have this system from 1965, it's working pretty well, but, you know, for whatever reason, we still think that private corporations can do it better than the government. And so we want to let in some private insurers and, you know, probably there was some pressure from lobbyists and so forth. And so they let in uh, the private insurers to, to write these Medicare Advantage plans. And uh, in the Medicare Advantage system, there is also a, a sort of capitation where the insurance company, whether it's United or Aetna, who's, who's your Medicare Advantage um, provider or insurer, is, is paid um, or pays the, the physician a, a certain amount of money to deliver the care. And they, they can increase the amount of money and, and they're paid this money. Uh, the, the Medicare Advantage and private insurers are paid then by the government um, from the Medicare fund to uh, then pay the providers. So they function as a middleman. And what Medicare has allowed to happen is that the payment, the per uh, patient per month payment for Medicare Advantage from CMS can be determined based on the level of that patient's uh, complexity in terms of their medical problems. And in turn, um, there have been schemes developed to um, increase the, the level of complexity and therefore the, the payment from CMS to the Medicare Advantage plan by upcoding. And by upcoding, uh, what we mean is that somebody with diabetes uh, could be coded as just a diabetic code when the doctor uh, puts their information on the billing sheet. Um, but they also could be um, upcoded by adding the fact that they have several complications from diabetes and maybe the doctor isn't uh, fully realizing that they need to put all those different codes in. But if they do, the reimbursement from the government will increase. And so other loopholes have developed to allow the Medicare Advantage insurance companies to go through patient records, through electronic record system and, and do the upcoding themselves Kind of over and above the physician. And they've even allowed uh, for Medicare Advantage uh, and the insurers to send nurses into beneficiaries' homes and ask them questions that allow them to increase the, the value, basically, of caring for that patient because they're going to get more money from Medicare to do that. So as a result, um, Medicare Advantage insurers, like your large corporations, have have made lots and lots of money. And in, in some cases, they've been found to be committing Medicare fraud. Uh, but what that looks like to Wall Street is a, a place that more profits can be 
uh, gained. And by, by you know, theoretically um, forming additional middlemen who can help so-called help various organizations of physicians and hospitals um, to figure out how they can increase their capitated fees. And maybe they help them also to cut, cut their expenses in certain ways and cut corners in various ways that they deliver care. And you know, following the model of venture capital, which is you, know, you invest um, quickly in a, 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 corp, a, a um, accountable care organization, which is a group of physicians and hospitals and so forth, um, you, you figure out how to, in, in rapid time frame, increase their profits, which you can do by changing the reimbursement coding, by cutting corners, by you know, getting a better supplier of medical uh, devices or drapes or whatever. And then you know, once the profit is made, then the venture capitalist exits, makes their profit, and, and the organization may be left significantly diminished from what they were before. And that's my understanding of how uh, Wall Street might enter. And so who's left at the end of the day holding the bag is you know, some physician providers that uh, may, may or may not still have a, uh, an organization that they're gonna get paid for seeing patients with, and also the patients on whose backs these cuts were made. And, and furthermore, you know, the big problem with the DCE model is that it was very unclear in the description uh, by CMS and CMMI that anybody signing up for Medicare would have any control over whether they were put into one of these DCEs. So it, it, it raises so many alarm bells um, for how complexity confuses and masks um, things that are happening that aren't creating um, benefits for patients. And, you know, when, when people try to understand it and they can't understand it, they, you know, throw up their hands and, and walk away. And that's actually part of the plan is, you know, to make the policies ever more complex so that you can't sort through and really see, well, what, what would be cost-effective and what would be care-effective to get better health outcomes for patients in this country? So when we're in a, a period of enrollment now in Medicare Advantage, right? We in Medicare in general, yeah. Right. We see uh, ads everywhere. You turn, you know, Joe Namath <laughs> and uh, J.J. Walker. And uh, I saw someone else who was familiar. Oh, Joe Montana, lots of sports figures. <laughs> right. Uh, are advertising on TV. And of course, those ads must cost a fortune, mm. which is, I think, gives us some indication of how lucrative it is to sell these Medicare Advantage plans to the population. So why is Medicare Advantage growing so large, uh, getting such a big cut of Medicare when really traditional Medicare has the advantage of uh, 
not having so many denials of care, not so many pre-authorizations, not limited to a network where people in traditional Medicare get to see the physician of their choice. So why does Medicare Advantage grow? Primarily because they're offering um, very discounted um, rates to the Medicare beneficiaries. So uh, many times, and uh, this is ever increasing, um, there are no premiums for Medicare Advantage. So even though you know we think that Medicare is supposed to be um, free when we turn 65, it's not because you pay a, a premium that's you know somewhat based on your earnings through your lifetime, and you pay a uh, an additional premium to get a Medigap plan, which you know most of us in the 65-year-old uh, age group would feel is necessary, you know, when we do get sick, uh, to cover the things that Medicare doesn't. And so those those premiums can actually, you know, be quite high. And to to get a Medicare Advantage plan that has no premiums is a huge draw. Um, and then there are other perks that have been added on to make them seem more attractive. And sometimes it's a dental benefit, uh, but usually the dental benefits that they add in a Medicare Advantage plan are, are very small. Sometimes it's, um, well, you'll, you know, you'll get free meals on wheels, but again, uh, after you come home from a hospital stay, you'll have meals on wheels available to you, but it, it might last for a week or two and then that benefit goes away. So. There's a lot of bells and whistles that are offered. Oh, gym memberships are another big one. Right. Silver sneakers and, and things like that. But, um, but the, the problem, as you said, is that um, the biggest problem is that M Medicare Advantage operates in narrow networks. So if you happen to get sick when you are not in the geographical area of your narrow networks, and most of these networks are are very um, circumscribed in a geographical area. For instance, in Pittsburgh, um, we really have two healthcare systems that, that we can use. And so um, if, if you know, somebody was happened to be in Kentucky and had an accident, they are at risk of, of not having a provider in their Medicare Advantage network that they can go to, or they get sick or have a heart attack when they're traveling somewhere. So that's a huge uh, disadvantage. And then, you know, more commonly, the narrow networks are going to function in such a way that if you have a problem that requires a specialist and the best one in your area is not in your narrow network, then you're not going to be able to go to that person and have that care covered. And so people within Medicare Advantage who start to get sick, which I mean, happens to us all as we age, uh, are finding problems with the narrow networks. And um, and, and sometimes the, the expenses with um, their co-pays uh, outside of network payments and so forth um, become just unsustainable and they would want to drop out of, of their Medicare Advantage plan and go back to the traditional fee-for-service Medicare, which is portable and you can use it everywhere. And all specialists are included. And virtually all the specialty, all specialists would participate. I and mean, pediatricians, not so much because they care for babies and kids, but 
um, people that take care of adults are going to participate. So that um, is a huge disadvantage to Medicare Advantage. And uh, we discovered uh, recently that uh, when you try to go back to traditional Medicare, because of these problems encountered in Medicare Advantage, the denials, the pre-authorizations, the narrow networks of both physicians and facilities, rehab, hospitals, et cetera, when you try to go back, the protection from discrimination for pre-existing conditions no longer exists. And uh, except in four states, which are all up in the Northeast, uh, people who try to go back to traditional Medicare can be denied a Medigap plan. That's the uh, supplementary plan, or they can be charged more, which is another great disadvantage of going into Medicare Advantage. That is, you lose the ability to take advantage of uh, being able to get without discrimination, without underwriting a Medigap policy. So um, actually we here in Kentucky have, uh, have uh, taken on that struggle and introduced into the Kentucky state legislature a bill that would make us one of the states that doesn't mm -hmm. allow that discrimination. And one of the physicians involved in our organization uh, actually got a resolution passed at the Kentucky Medical Association that also took that position that Kentucky should become one of the states that doesn't allow this discrimination. Anyway, all of that is so very complex, but uh, the uh, at least with Medicare Advantage, which is what we have had for some time, there is some choice. In other words, people make a decision to purchase that plan, maybe under false understanding uh, or false advertising, but at least there is some decision that the patient has made to choose that plan. That's not the case with the direct contracting entities. Is that right? Well, that's, that's what we think. Um, I mean, and again, it's, it's not clear. <laughs> In, in any of the description in CMMI um, as to how that would work. And, um, you know, we, we have heard of, of subscribers who've received a letter saying, well, you're now part of, your doctor is now part of this ACO, which may be one of the direct contracting entities. And so, you're gonna sort of get sucked in that way. And before you know it, you, your, your care is now because your doctor, you know, maybe their practice was bought by one of these entities. You know, you, you won't have the, a, a bright white line that shows up on your Medicare card that says, you know, Medicare DCE or anything like that. And so the question about whether you can get out is, is unclear. Um, and I, it's my impression that the DCEs are already functioning, but it's, I think, too early to ever get any information about 
that sort of problem? Are people able to get back into Medicare fee-for-service? It doesn't look to me like they are. It seems to me that they can do that if they leave their physician and find a right. physician exactly. who isn't participating in one of these DCEs. But that's a pretty harsh thing to have to do if you have a relationship sure. with a physician. That's a, 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 a earth shattering thing to have to do to get back into a traditional Medicare plan. So, uh, well, wouldn't the, the thing that, well, the person might not notice that they're in the DCE, but their physician would now be paid through capitation, which means the incentive, the monetary incentive to the practice which may be owned by some private equity, you know, group that makes the decisions rather than the physician. And the incentives would all be to give less care. Is right. that right? Right. Uh, yeah, I mean, whenever you pay someone up front and you, <laughs> you uh, and, and that's all they're gonna get. Um, and and there, there's also a, Another piece of this, which is also very complex, which is the shared savings, so that you know some physicians are going to be rewarded if they, uh, you you may if if the group as a whole um, somehow saves money um, because they're not they're not billing for as much care, whatever care, whatever constitutes care, whether it's ordering extra tests or. Uh, trying a new treatment, then they will, the, the providers or doctors or the group that owns the doctors will uh, participate in some of the savings uh, that the um, insurers uh, gain from their ultimate payments to, from CMS. And so it does create a, an incentive for physicians as well to, you know, and, and there's a great deal of debate about whether this type of, um, you know, so-called value-based care is, is really um, helping anyone. There's debate about whether it's really saving any money because it costs a great deal of money to implement all the tools to try to figure out if you're saving any money. <laughs> and and also it create it on the so-called quality side which is you know are patients healthier are they living longer um are diabetics you know getting their you know their testing on a certain schedule so that their sugars are in better control and so on and so on all of that requires the implementation of um infrastructure that measures all of those things and and People are just trying to create that from scratch. There's no, there was no, you know, template where we can just throw this on and say, well, now we know that the quality was so much better. And now we know that, um, oh, our, our overhead went down, but you know, it, it stands to reason as you pointed out that the overhead from the insurance companies can't possibly be going down when they're spending millions on these ads. And, and it is, a, it is a, a, just a massive campaign, I think, this year more than ever with the TV ads, the mailings, 
Um, and, you know, I just turned 65 this year, so I've been getting all of it. Um, I don't really watch TV, so I don't, I haven't seen the, the luminaries that are the Joe Namus and all of that, but the stuff that's coming in the mail, and I also get a lot of phone calls for Medicare Advantage. So, you know, I guess, you know, to kind of go back to the bird's eye view, the other question is, well, why are we hearing over and over again that, you know, each year the United States um, comes in last um, of an ec economically developed countries around the world in terms of our life expectancy and health out outcomes. I mean, that must be something that we could look at um, to understand how we're doing um, in, in this effort to improve quality and improve care. And um, so it, it, it's, it's really a, a difficult situation and, and it's so confusing and totally understandable that um, people who are on a limited budget retired, um, you know, no longer seeing an income are gonna choose a plan that doesn't have a, a premium, no monthly premium. Absolutely. I totally understand that. Absolutely. And, and I, you know, and, and the lack of, of knowledge about it, I was with some friends last night. Um, all of us were physicians um, and two of them aren't yet 65, but the other two are, are past 65 and one is a retired pediatrician, one is an about to retire psychiatrist. And they told me that they signed up for Medicare Advantage. And actually one of that couple is an insulin dependent diabetic. And I, I, was, I, I was just so um, afraid for them and I didn't wanna react to, they've already done it. It's already a done deal. They've been, and she said, well, there's no premium. <laughs> and so I, I, you know, Kind of hard to um, be the bearer of bad news that you may not ever get back into fee-for-service Medicare. But these are physicians, <laughs> and um, so and you know, he, as a pediatrician, he wouldn't have had any experience with Medicare, um, you know, from the provider standpoint. So, well, that's that's the. Uh, uh, I don't think that we can defeat these for-profit tigers in our healthcare system by simply encouraging people not to choose Medicare Advantage. Right. Because, yeah, no, it's too, it's too tempting. And uh, well, we have so many of our seniors who live on such limited incomes, you know, we've had a crash in pensions and many industries and uh, people are not retiring on adequate income. So mm -hmm. if they can lower their monthly expenses, uh, I think that that, you know, is, is it may be for many people the logical step to take because if you don't get sick on Medicare Advantage, you can come out better right. on, on the basis of a monthly cost. If you become very, very ill, then you discover that those um, co-pays, deductibles, and uh, limitations enter in to causing that to not be a good decision. And of course, for those who see healthcare as a money-making proposition, 
that's great for them. Then you're, <laughs> once it gets expensive for you, you, you want to get out and you want to right. go back. And that means that they get rid of the people who are more costly and they reach out for the younger and healthier people to make more money. So uh, we really are faced with a situation where it, I don't think it can be solved just by encouraging a choice. I think we as a, a nation have to take on what are these profit makers doing to our healthcare system mm-hmm. and how do we fix it? What, what do we have to do to make something better happen for our people? Well, I mean, every time I, I go into the rabbit hole of trying to understand, you know, and, and really parse out um, the various reports on, um, you know, what are, what are the cost savings that uh, Medicare Advantage or, um, or any other of these um, models like ACO um, and value-based care and everything, you, you know, you you start reading and there are conflicting reports, um, but it's, it, it's impossible to, to sort through it and understand it. And I, I'm always just left with the, if we didn't have these multitudes of layers of middlemen and, you know, methods of accounting and, you know, capturing this or that um, small savings and comparing that to the overhead and everything else, if, why, why wouldn't we want to do a single payer? And it's not as if it hasn't been done and implemented and succeeded in, in other countries. I mean, everybody's well aware of that uh, as far as the, you know, the European models, the Canadian models. Um, it just seems so obvious that, um, you know, there are many uh, examples of public plans that do it well, such as the VA, such as traditional fee-for-service Medicare. Um, and, you know, we, we would do so much better to simplify things. It, it makes it easier to account for what's going on when you don't have so many different players. Right. You know, I think one of the, one of the problems is that we have the wrong uh, diagnosis by those who run the uh, CMMI. Uh, they basically uh, believe, or at least they assert, that the problem is overtreatment. Right. That the doctors are giving too much care. People, people are getting more. That there's an over overuse of the system, and. Um, I think that's not true. What do you think? No, I think it's definitely <laughs> not true. <laughs> so what they are treating when they set up these, these experimental things, these ACOs and direct contracting entities, they're trying to squeeze out that overuse. Right. And uh, what I see is that we have more underuse, more people who need care and don't get it. Absolutely. And uh, that the, they are treating the wrong problem and that mm-hmm. we could save the money, we could remove the for-profit insurers from our system 
saving massive sums enough to cover everyone who doesn't have coverage and to improve coverage to all medically necessary care, dental eyeglasses, long-term care, everything we need and do it for no more money than we spend now. What do you Absolutely. think? Absolutely. And, you know, of course, um, you know, PNHP has spent years uh, documenting how these, how the, how the money actually adds up. And, and there's, you know, there, there's excellent evidence that it wouldn't cost more. Um, and, you know, I think the other, I, I had a few glitches when signing up for Medicare. There's some rule in there that if your birthday falls on the first day of the month, there it, your sign up is different. And I happened to be born on September 1st. And, you know, I got a little frustrated and I, I ended up having to go one month without my part B, um, but it takes effect tomorrow. So oh. I'm fully, <laughs> but the, you know, and I, and I was getting all upset and thinking, well, actually the government's doing a terrible job. And, and then I thought, well, if we didn't have Medicare only at 65 and it, I had it since I was born, then you wouldn't have any of this. You've got all these pressure points where, you know, uh, you, you're born and, you know, hopefully you, your parents have employer-based insurance, healthcare insurance, and you're covered automatically, but then you turn 26 and you can't be on their plan. And then you turn 65 and you have to figure out the enrollment and pick Medicare Advantage and think of all the simplicity that could occur if it just started at the beginning and then you didn't have all this stuff about signing up and you didn't need all the, um, you know, uh, gnashing of teeth over uh, which way you're going to go and it, it, it just makes so much more sense. And that doesn't even get into the, you know, the issues, as you said, with people not getting the care that they need. Right. They're not covered. It's, uh, it's uh, an extremely complex situation. And we in the single payer movement are working to try to explain to people and to mobilize our nation. You know, it seems to me that almost everyone, almost everyone, not everyone, is for everybody having the care that they need. And that what we don't yet have consensus on is how do we do that? Right. <laughs> and, uh, you know, there are those who say, well, you know, let the market work, a free market, you know, price, get a little competition out there, the prices will come down. And uh, we think that the world has shown us that the systems that work are to publicly fund healthcare and to make it automatic and available to absolutely everyone. And that can bring down the cost and assure that everyone gets the care they need. So we're fighting this privatization of Medicare now because that's been the model plan in our country for our single payer movement for a long time. And uh, these direct contracting entities seem to threaten that, that solution by uh, handing over Medicare to Wall Street as we're trying to <laughs> expand Medicare to cover all of the people in our nation. Here in, uh, here in Louisville, uh, one of the direct contracting entities is Humana. So they're one of the big insurers and they seem to be one of the insurers that's into this big time. Um, 
we've been talking with Judy Albert. She is uh, a Physicians for National Health Program uh, leader in Western Pennsylvania. She is also a OB-GYN uh, and uh, is working very hard to explain direct contracting entities and to mobilize uh, the public to protest them, to do something about that. Uh, you can sign a petition against the direct contracting entities at pnhp.org. If you go to that website, you can find a way to do that. And um, we appreciate it very much, Judy, that you've been able to be with us. Do you have any parting thoughts for us? Sign the petition um, and uh, stay aware of what's going on. Um, try to get educated about um, the different changes that are happening as best you can. It's, it's quite difficult, but in addition to the um, petition available on the website, pnhp.org, there is just a treasure trove of, um, of good explanations and um, non-wonkish uh, ways of understanding how we could pay for a single payer system. And I strongly encourage people to utilize that website. It's, it's so much better and it's all at one place, so much better than trying to find things just by uh, you know, scanning the internet. Well, thank you so much, Judy, for taking the time to be with us on Single Payer Radio. And we appreciate that very much. Well, thank you. Thanks for, the, for having a single payer radio. That's awesome.